My name is Justin, and I am a son of God and an addict, and the host of the RICO 12 Speaker Meeting. And thanks to my God, the steps, and the fellowship of other addicts, I'm living in the relative happy, joyous, and free that is promised to those living in recovery and have been very active in the rooms of recovery since September of 2013. Welcome to RICO 12. RICO 12 is an organization with the mission of learning and sharing the similarities of addiction of all kinds and gaining and sharing tools and hope from others who are walking a similar path. We come together from all places, faiths, and backgrounds to gain tools and hopes and, and hope from others who are walking a similar path. Speakers from our past meetings have represented many fellowships and identify with addictions with such variety as alcoholism, drugs, food, sex, gambling, theft, codependency, and all of the anon groups, just to name a few. We invite recovering addicts with at least one year sobriety and who are actively working their recovery in their respective fellowships to share their experience, strength, and hope on a live Zoom webinar each Friday at noon central time for 20 to 25 minutes. Then we, the live audience, get the opportunity to ask questions of that speaker for another 20 to 25 minutes. If you are hearing this meeting in recorded podcast form and would like to participate as a live audience member in the future, please go to www.reco12.com, that's R-E-C-O-1-2.com, to learn more and to submit your email address there to receive weekly invitations. RICO 12 is a self-supporting service, and we appreciate your help in keeping us, work, uh, keeping us working our 12th step in this manner. We gratefully accept contributions, and I'll put the link of that, how to do that in the chat of the live meeting and also in the show notes of the podcast if you'd like to contribute. We look forward each week to receiving from the light reflected from our speakers. That light inspires hope, meaning, worth, and growth in us, the listening audience. Now, I'll introduce today's guest speaker for today, um, JW, whose chosen topic is applying the 12 traditions to romantic relationships. Now, here's a little bit about Jay in his own words. I walked into the rooms on December 2nd, 1988, a functional alcoholic but at an absolute bottom spiritually, emotionally, and behaviorally. At that first meeting, I felt the breath of God, grace, blowing on me with a gentleness I did not deserve and had not earned, and have been clean and sober ever since. I am a clinical hospice nurse, advanced grief recovery specialist, national speaker, and author of Compassionate Journeys, Lessons from My Work with the Dying, and a second book on applying the 12 traditions to relationships are out in the spring spring of 2022. Take it away, Jay. The floor is yours. Yay. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. My name is Jay Westbrook. I'm an alcoholic. Sober today by God's mercy and the practice of the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are so glad to be here. So here's my story on this stuff. Um, I'm old. It was many decades ago. It was a Friday night. There was a party in Pacific Palisades, California that I didn't want to go to, but I knew there'd be some good outside issues. So I went and uh, about one in the morning, my friend George came up with this little blonde and said, Nancy, this is Jay. Jay, this is Nancy. She wants to walk on the beach, but it's not safe at night, even in the Palisades. Go with her. And we took the footbridge over Pacific Coast Highway. We came down, we walked the beach for five hours. The sun came up and it was amore prima noche, love at first night. Not love at first sight, love at first night. And we were inseparable from that first morning on. And Nancy, just so you know who Nancy is, I hope you can see that. It's a little, looks like it's a little reflective, but you know, Nancy was stunningly beautiful, the kind of beautiful where people would look at her and smile and then look at me and scrunch their face up and look at her and just shake their heads like, oh, my God, he must be so rich or so hung. And I'm a clinical hospice nurse, so you go figure. Um, anyway, we we fell in love. We were both alcoholics and drug addicts and we drank and used together till the wheels fell off. And um, and mine fell off first and Nancy didn't get sober, but she did get lonely and she started going to meetings. And on my 90th day, she stood up and said, I'm Nancy Morgan Westbrook. I'm a cocaine addict and an alcoholic and stayed sober the rest of her life. And. Um, and fast forward 23 and a half years later. Nancy died in my arms in our home on hospice with pancreatic cancer. 
and the ground went out from under me without a doubt and um, didn't know if I could stay sober, but I got real clear that I was unwilling to disrespect the program that gave me so much, that gave Nancy so much, and that gave Jancy, we were that AA couple, Jancy, and uh, we were unwilling, I was unwilling to disrespect that program. So I reframed my pain a small price to pay for a lifelong love affair. I uh, stayed sober. I took my wedding ring off. I took my ring and Nancy's to a custom jeweler in Beverly Hills and said, melt the two rings together and make me a new one that's a little wider and a little thicker. And that's what I wear. And so you kind of have two for one, Jancy speaking to you today. And what's so interesting is the love, that powerful thunderbolt, amore prima noce, love that we felt that first morning, never dimmed, never abated, never lessened. It stayed just as intense from that first morning until 44 years later when Nancy took her last breath in my arms. And um, and I would like to tell you that that behavior, I mean, that that love was matched by behavior, but it would be a lie. And it baffled us. We loved each other so much, but we were unable to match deep loving feelings with consistent loving behavior. The brakes were out. We didn't know how to fix them. We didn't have the instruction manual. We lied. We cheated. We stole. We we brought the qualities that alcoholics bring immaturity, grandiosity, arrogance, scorekeeping, self-pitying, self-righteous unforgiving, reactive, disrespectful, self-aggrandizing, uh, self-justifying, and, and so many others. And, uh, and it broke our hearts. It really did. And then when I had six months and Nancy had three months, we went to Dr. Paul, the guy who wrote the story that has the paragraph on acceptance in the big book. We went to his do-it-yourself couples communication workshop. We repledged our love. We said, we're going to try that other way, monogamy, fidelity. And, and I was determined that we would find tools to make that relationship work. And two days later, I found that the 12 traditions, which I thought had to do with corporate AA, were the instruction manual for relationships. And we worked the steps, but we lived and loved those traditions, and they gave us the tools to transform deep loving feelings into consistent loving behavior. And that marriage changed 180 degrees. And we developed a workshop, which we did all over the world, and I still do, uh, did a two-hour version just last weekend and uh, have a book coming out on those 12 traditions and how to apply them. And, you know, the problem is, is that we were loners, even though we were in a marriage. And when I say I'm a loner, I mean I lie to you, I lie to me, and I lie to God. You ask me if things are good emotionally, sexually, financially, and I use the F word. I smile and I tell you they're fine. Fine, F-I-N-E, feelings inside, not expressed. They're fine. And I'm lying to you. And then I lie to God and I say, I don't need you. I got this. I got it covered. And more importantly, I lie to me and say there is no problem. So I don't need Nancy's help. I don't need a fellowship's help. And I certainly don't need a God's help because I'm lying to me about the fact that there's no problem. And I'm alone and I'm dying alone. I'm absolutely dying and I can't manage my life loaded or sober by myself. And that's the problem. And it's articulated in step one. And the solution is right there in the first tradition that says, and I'm going to talk about the marriage, that our, that our recovery, our marriage's recovery depends upon our unity. Our common welfare comes first, not Nancy's welfare, not Jay's, but our common welfare. And maybe that back then my waist was smaller and my hair was bigger. Um, it was big enough that I thought I was a mind reader and I didn't even think I knew the IRS was after us. Now, they hadn't written a letter. They hadn't made a call, but I knew they were going to seize the bank accounts. And uh, OK, 
rigorous honesty, the bank account, singular. And so I rushed to the bank. I pulled all the money out. It was $9,800. I put it in my back pocket. It was 1989. It was a fair amount of money back then. And I have swear to God, I have no idea how it happened. But the next day, I ended up in front of Glendale. I went on a ride on my little Honda Shadow motorcycle, and I ended up in front of Glendale Harley Davidson. And in the window was a red used FXR soft tail with a price tag of $9,800. And I knew that meant the God in whom I did not believe wanted me to have a Harley. But Jancy wanted a house, but Jay wanted a Harley. But Jancy wanted a house. And for the first time in my life, I made a conscious decision to put the common welfare first. I left the Harley in the window, the money in my pocket. I got back on my little Honda Shadow, put it away. The next week, I put the money back in the bank. The next couple of years, we added to it. And we ended up with a nice house in Lake Balboa, a suburb of Los Angeles. And, um, and that's a perfect example. And so we created filters for these traditions. And the first filter to filter for tradition one is, is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do going to create greater separation or greater unity? Is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do going to create greater separation or greater unity? And if it's greater separation, I don't say it and I don't do it. You know, and then I you step into step two, which talks about coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And I was insane when I got here. And, you know, that second step gave me some hope, but that's all it did. It gave me hope. It didn't give me a single tool. And I was absolutely insane and trying to control everything and everyone around me. And I step into tradition, too. And there's the solution. It says there's but one ultimate authority, and it's not you, Jay. It's not you. It's a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. And if you would stop acting like the ultimate authority, you might make a little room for God. If you'd stop trying to control everything and everyone, there might be a little room for God. And if there were a little room for God, maybe with God would if God came in, some sanity might come in as well. And that was my experience. And so then we just had to figure out how to do a group conscience, Jay and Nancy and God. And here's what it looked like based on the idea that we see what we look for. We see what we look for. And I would look for a loving God and Nancy. And when I saw it, when I looked for it, I saw it. And when I saw it, it changed how I spoke to Nancy, how I spoke about her, and how I engaged her. And it wasn't hard because as beautiful as Nancy was, she was even kinder. Now comes the hard part. I hated me in early sobriety, but we see what we look for. And when I looked for a loving God in me, I saw it. And when I saw it, it changed how I spoke to myself and how I spoke about myself. And most importantly, how I offered myself. And just from those first two traditions, that marriage had changed behaviorally 120 degrees. And I don't know if you all know the history of AA, but in the early days, the meetings didn't want queers, crackpots, fallen women, beggars, thieves, tramps, prisoners, or asylum inmates. And my home group has always been Log Cabin in West Hollywood, California, until I moved to Mississippi two and a half months ago. And I want to tell you in West Hollywood, honey, if you got rid of the queers, the crackpots, and the fallen women, the rooms would be empty. So... AA was very conditional, and then they got wise, they created the traditions and became unconditional. And the third tradition asks us to surrender being conditional in our marriage, and that's what I want to do. I want to be a husband who is loving and kind unconditionally, not depending on how Nancy's acting or speaking on any given day. I want to be a husband who's honoring and honorable, passionate and compassionate, playful and spontaneous, courageous and consistent, 
oh my God, and curious and forgiving and respectful and so many other qualities, not depending on how Nancy's acting on any given day. And so that's how I change. And that means I have to give up scorekeeping, remembering every good thing I've ever done and every bad thing Nancy's ever done. It means that I allow what Nancy gives to be enough. And when I do that, it makes it safe for her to risk giving more. And man, that is such powerful stuff in how we do relationships. It just, and, and it comes, some of it anyway, comes out of that third step where I've turned my will and my life, my thinking and my behavior over to the care of God. The shorthand being, I'm not gonna do God's job. I'm, I'm gonna do God's work, not his job. And so my job is to show up, to live fully, to love deeply, to serve others, not to try and control everyone and everything. And so when I do that with Nancy, my relationship with her changes. And when I do it with God, my relationship with God changes. There is no, well, I'll stay sober as long as you don't let my mother die or my dog die. That's conditional stance with God. And I need to let that go. I surrender being conditional in that third tradition. And in the fourth tradition, the AA version says that each meeting should be autonomous, self-governing, except in matters affecting other meetings or AA as a whole. And the couple's version is that each spouse, each partner should be autonomous, self-governing, except in matters affecting the other person or the couple as a whole. So when we lived by Plummer Park in West Hollywood and we drove to the Monday night La Cienega Park meeting in Beverly Hills in our big wide white Chevy Blazer, I drove the right way, which was south on Martell, west on six, these little side streets. And Nancy would go, what are you doing? We're in this big wide Blazer. We're gonna get sideswiped. And when Nancy drove, she drove the wrong way, west on Santa Monica, south on La Cienega. And I'd go, why are we sitting in all this traffic? And we'd fight all the way to the meeting. And then we said, oh my God, fourth tradition. How about driver decides and passenger doesn't suggest criticize, sigh, pout, sulk, or any other behavior. Driver decides, and whether we go south and west or west and south, we still get to the meeting, so it doesn't matter. And people noticed. They said, oh, my God, you guys are getting to the meeting, and you, you look so happy. It's like, yeah, we're applying the fourth tradition to the trip here. And then the fifth tradition says that we have a primary purpose. And that that purpose is to carry the message. Well, what's the message? Page 84 in the big book says it's love and tolerance. That's our code, love and tolerance. So I have an obligation to carry the message, a primary purpose to carry the message to whom? It says the alcoholic who suffers. It doesn't say the drunk, homeless alcoholic living in the bushes. It just says the alcoholic who suffers. So. Nancy comes home at the end of a hard day's work. She's been battling L.A. traffic. Her arms are full. She can't close the door. So she kicks it shut. It slams. She throws her stuff down and sighs. <clears throat> and in a heartbeat, because I've got massive PTSD, I'm a survivor of ritualistic torture and daily gang rapes from three, age three on, horrendous incest, horrendous torture. I've got PTSD and it's usually dormant, but boy, it can get triggered. And when Nancy slammed that door in a heartbeat, I can go to, hey, what are you bringing that anger into my house for? But it's not mine, it's ours. And it's not a house, it's a home. And if I look and this tradition says that I carry the message to the alcoholic who suffers, all I need to do is reframe her slamming that door. And instead of seeing it as an anger, I see it as suffering. 
She's frustrated. She's exhausted. She's worked hard all day and battled traffic. And if I see it as suffering, then instantly I know I bring love and tolerance to it. I don't bring judgment and criticism. Now comes the hard part again. And that is I've got to do the same with Jay without excusing myself from accountability or responsibility. I have to accept that sometimes my usually dormant PTSD can get awakened. And when it does, if it comes out in wonky behavior, my job is to see that behavior as a manifestation of my suffering. And instead of going, you piece of shit, you ass, you loser, you my job is to let go of that judgment and criticism and replace it with mercy because that's the perfect opposite of judgment. Judgment comes from the head and mercy from, comes from the heart and judgment wounds and mercy heals and judgment separates and mercy unites and judgment is touching pain with fear. And mercy is touching that pain with love. And I'm so grateful for that tradition. And then in the sixth tradition, I'm a hospice nurse. I'm not about money. I'm not about property. But I need to be very careful of that prestige piece where I get prestige from being the one who's right and making you wrong and using my my um, intellect and my education and how smart I am to prove that I'm smarter than you and that you're wrong, you know, or that my choice was right or my route that we want to take on the freeway. Uh, my route is the right one, the, the prestige of being the one in the know when I gossip you know, or being the biggest victim, having the roughest childhood. I didn't. It was a horrible childhood. And lots of people have. Them. And I suffered. And my suffering became my vehicle for awakening compassion in me and for me and for others. And it's what allows me to be present to bear witness with a compassionate presence to the suffering of others, the physical mental, emotional, and spiritual suffering of the dying and the grieving at a level that never would have been possible without that suffering. I don't have to have be the biggest victim or the martyr when I work harder on a sponsee's recovery than they do. I need to not do that. I never work harder anymore on a sponsee's recovery than they do. And certainly never work harder on anyone else's recovery than on my own. And the seventh tradition, oh, my God, saved my life. I used to think it was just about the money, you know, that we pass the basket because we're self-supporting. But the filter that Nancy and I created for the seventh tradition, which in early sobriety saved my life because I'm good with a gun, with a pistol. I don't know about rifles, but I'm a good shot with a pistol. And I shot myself in the foot again and again and again in terms of my health, my happiness, my finances, I, I was self-sabotaging. And so the seventh tradition filter, if I can just pause and use it, says is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do, self-sabotaging or self-supporting. And if it's self-sabotaging, I don't say it. And if it's self-sabotaging, I don't do it. And what a difference, how many times that has saved me if I can just implement that moment's pause and put what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do through that filter of is this self-sabotaging or is this self-supporting? And then in step eight, we do that little three-column inventory. Who have I harmed? How did I harm them? And what were the defects of character at play? And I become sensitized to the fact that I have the ability to harm others. And so I step into tradition eight and tradition eight is the one that talks about um, <laughs> just going blank, that that AA ought be ought forever remain non-professional. What what does that have to do with the marriage? everything. So we're at the Monday night La Cienega Park meeting. The meeting ends. Nancy's talking to this nice couple. We're not going out to eat with them or anything. She's just chatting. I'm not part of it, but I'm close enough to hear her say, oh my God, our favorite Italian restaurants, Benvenuto at La Cienega and Santa Monica. 
And I say, no, it isn't. It's on the south side of Santa Monica, just west of La Cienega, which would have been important if we were going to meet them there in 10 minutes because it's a big intersection and they'd know how to approach, but we weren't. And I saw the hurt in Nancy's eyes and how harshly I had spoken to her in front of other people and that I had been so desperate to be right that I was willing to harshly make her wrong. And I vowed never to do that again. And that's the behavior of the professional who is the expert, the know-it-all, competitive, rigid, focused on the win, impatient, and that's not the husband I want to be. I want to be the husband who is an amateur, who does this for fun and for free and for love of the marriage, who's cooperative, not competitive, flexible, not rigid, curious, not the know-it-all, willing to fall down and get up and allow Nancy to fall down and wait for her and gently help her up. And that posture of the amateur rather than the professional in my marriage and as a husband is essential to the joy and closeness and intimacy and vulnerability of a marriage. And then in tradition nine, I give up manipulation. You know, it talks about AA ought never be organized. And that's what manipulation is, is being organized. I'm trying to organize your thoughts, your words, and your behavior to endorse my position or further my agenda. I'm trying to organize your words, your thoughts, your behavior to further endorse my position or advance my agenda. And here's the deal. Anything I get through manipulating you is less satisfying. And when I'm manipulating, there's no room for curiosity. There's no room for humility. And there's no trust or faith in the universe or in God. It's like I have to determine what's going to be best for me and then manipulate others to get it. And I don't want to live like that. And in tradition 10, Having done the work of step 10, written daily inventory, then in tradition 10, I can get real clear on not allowing outside issues to separate us. And outside issues are anything outside of my relationship with Nancy, my relationship with God and my recovery. Everything else, it can be important, but it's secondary. And I learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And what a gift that 10th tradition provides. And the 11th tradition is my absolute favorite, you know, and, and the 11th tradition, I know it says that it's a, our public relations policy is based on attraction, not promotion. And my time's almost up. So I'm going to start with the filter that says if my loving God were standing right next to me, would that loving God find what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do attractive? And if not, then I don't say it and I don't do it. And that dovetails perfectly into my prayer, which when I was out there using and drinking and didn't believe in God, I still prayed to God and said with punctuation, please, comma, God, comma, don't let that liquor store close, please, comma, God, comma, don't let those police be pulling me over. And the prayer that I have today is essentially the same, except the punctuations changed. And today the prayer is, please, God, behave in a way and speak in a way that I believe would please a loving God, that would be attractive to a loving God. And so that's how I use this 11th tradition. And, and, and I mean, there's so many stories and there's so much depth and more filters and tighter uh, um, correspondence, a connection between each step and the corresponding tradition. All of that will be in the book that I have coming out, hopefully at the end of the summer or early fall. 
on my computer got stolen and with it the whole manuscript because I'm not a tech person and I hadn't properly backed it up. And I was burgled just before I left L.A. and then going back and forth with AA's intellectual property on how much I can use of the traditions. Anyway, the book will be wonderful as a guide to applying the 12 traditions to romantic relationships. I, my time is up, so we're going to stop here. We're not going to do the 12th, but I hope that at least one person here got one tool out of one of the traditions that you can use to start changing your relationships, be they romantic or with family of origin or on the freeway or in the workplace or in the rooms that you in your friendships at your sober living that you can use starting today to change those relationships. My name is Jay Westbrook. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you, Jay. That was fantastic. And I got at least, well, 11 uh, principles that I can apply into my marriage from that. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope on that. And I'm going to start off with the first question. Tell me how the 12th tradition applies in your marriage and in your <laughs> romantic relationships. <laughs> you are so cute. So here's the deal. If I do the work of step 12 and I've had a spiritual awakening, then I walk in humility. And humility is um, greatly expressed through anonymity. And I want to tell you at 33 and a half years sober, I'm really good at these 11 traditions. I suck at the 12th tradition. I want credit. I want balloons, parades, confetti, praise, applause. Look, Nancy, I I vacuumed the floor. And she'll look at me and says, she'll go, I saw, and I saw the spots you missed. And uh, by the way, I vacuumed it the last six times. Look, Nancy, I picked up the dog poop. I took the trash out. Well, wouldn't you be doing that even if you lived alone? Well, yeah, but, and, and I was lecturing professionally around the country a bunch at these uh, state hospice, annual hospice conventions. And they paid me as keynote speaker. They paid me a chunk of money and I quietly put it all towards our mortgage and paid a 30 year mortgage off in 14 years. And I remember writing that last check and I walked into Nancy's little office at home and she was on the computer and I said, Nancy, I just paid off the mortgage. And she stopped typing and and she looked up at me and smiled and said, oh, my God, honey, that's amazing. I love you. And went back to work. And I'm like, what? What are you doing? Where? Where's the parade, the balloons, the confetti, the sex, the, you know. And Nancy's from Wichita, Kansas, has that Midwestern value. And she stopped and looked at me and she said, sweetheart, that's what we're supposed to do. They lent us some money for the house and then we pay it back and went right back to work. And it was like, no, that's not enough. I still look for the credit. And so I'm struggling with that 12th tradition, but that's the application that we quietly and anonymously do things for our spouse and we don't demand praise and recognition for it. Uh, thank you for getting to that 12th tradition, because that's also one that I, well, all of them I struggle with, but uh, that's one in my own relationship. But that's one that, yeah, I really want the parade. I want the streamers and the, yeah, hey, you took out the trash. Woohoo. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, <laughs> very good. Well, thank you again very much, Jay. Um, a reminder to our live audience, if you have questions for Jay, please type them in the Q&A link at the bottom of your window. We'll get to those. We already have several that have come in and we look forward to getting to as many of those as we can. First is just a statement. Kathy from Shreveport says hi. She wants to make sure that uh, that you're aware that she's cheering for you and in here for you. Welcome, Kathy. We're happy you're here. All right. Question from Ryan from our live audience. Ryan says, Jay, thank you so much. This has been such an insightful share for me, and I'm grateful I was able to listen live. I can very much relate to, quote, seeing a loving God in my wife, but I have a hard time still seeing that in myself. Can you talk a bit about seeing a loving God in yourself? Yeah. Um, am I? Yeah, I'm unmuted. So as I said, we see what we look for. We hear what we listen for. So <clears throat> I'm kind of a pioneer in 
the end of life work, particularly palliative care. And so I end up lecturing to a lot of medical students and nursing students and young doctors and young nurses. And they, um, they pride themselves on their observational abilities. You know, it's so important to notice every subtlety and nuance in a patient. And so they pride themselves. And when I lecture to them, I'll say, I'll look around the room and choose a couple of colors. And I'll say, look, I want to do an exercise. Everybody take six seconds, uh, look around this room, see, spot and remember everything you can that is either silver or black, or maybe I'll say brown or beige. Go six seconds. And at the end of six seconds, I say, okay, everybody stop, close your eyes and yell out everything you saw that was blue. And it's silent. And then I'll say, open your eyes and look and they look and there's like all of this blue, but they never saw it because they were only looking for what was silver and black, silver or black or brown or beige. And so I say, this is an example of how powerful this idea of we see what we look for is. Just like if I say, I can't find my keys, I can look right at them and my brain doesn't let me see them because it's saying, and somebody will go, are these your keys? And it's like, I looked there, I didn't see them. So it's a truth that we see what we look for. For when you start looking for a loving God in yourself, you'll see it. Whose eyes are you looking for God's with? You're looking through God's eyes. How is it that you're breathing, that you're standing, that you have a mind that works, a tongue that that can form words and have them come out of your mouth articulately, that you can hear what I'm saying, that you could that's all God. You are God has no grandkids, only kids, and God doesn't make junk. And that's true. Period. That's true regardless of how many times you have walked out into that world and engaged in behavior to try and validate the lie that when God made you, he did make junk. But it's a lie. You know, and I do a little bit, I'll, I'll tell you this story, I do a little bit of, of, of hospice work in the corrections community. And the prison I go to more than any other is the largest maximum security prison in the United States. And that's Angola State Penitentiary down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 92% of the men at the largest maximum security prison in the United States were under the influence when they committed the crime that put them there. And they have an active death chamber there. And I have stood in that death chamber with the warden, Earl Kane, good old Southern name, good old Southern boy. And I want to tell you, I, he said to me, standing in that death chamber one day, he said, you know, Jay, while I have no problem carrying out the court mandated consequences of the prisoner's behavior, I will tell you that every man who's executed in this room, I hold his hand, I tell him he's loved and he's not alone. And it's like that warden lives what you all have heard me say, and that is that God has no grandkids, only kids, and God doesn't make junk. And if that's the truth, then you just need to keep looking and you will see that God. I mean, you will see the God in you if you look for it and look for it consistently. Stop looking for what's wrong with you and what isn't God and look for what is. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jay. Next question came in from Sam. And Sam leads his question with a quote, uh, a phrase that we all have all heard. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. With this in mind, how can you tell if what you're going to say will create unity or separation, especially if you have the intention to unify? It too often happens that when I do this, I find more separation occurs despite, despite my intentions. Okay. So, you know, I talk about often the ideas, often we we don't know what is, but but we almost always know what isn't. And people go, huh, what do you mean? It's like, well, I may not always know what the right thing to say is, 
but I almost always know what the wrong thing is and that I shouldn't say it. I may not always know what the right thing to do is, but I almost always know what the wrong thing is and that I shouldn't do it, you know, and, and it's different for everybody. I mean, we know that if we say, if we flip somebody off on the freeway, that it's probably the wrong thing. Maybe they're a tough guy who's going to pull out a gun and shoot at us. Maybe they're stressed out because they just got fired. Maybe they're on the way to the hospital because there's daughters dying with leukemia. You know, give some, we know that, you know, so and we know turning to our romantic partner and going, fuck you, you're an asshole is separating hurtful corrosive to the relationship. We know that. But it's the other stuff that I think you're talking about. And here's the deal. Um, Every time I get in trouble with this, with my mouth, it's not because I've said, fuck you. It's because I'm trying to be cute or clever or helpful. And if somebody hasn't asked for my help, and I know this from my work, my job is to sit there and bear witness with a compassionate presence and have the restraint, the compassion, the courage, and the humility to not impose my tools, my pain management tools, my spiritual tools, to not impose those tools unless and until they're asked for. And so it's the same thing. When I know that my motive is to be cute or clever or to help you and you haven't asked for my help, I probably shouldn't say what I'm about to say. It might be, no, no, no. Uh, You're using fewer when you should be saying less. Fewer is plural, less is singular. I have less money than you, or I have fewer dollars. See? Well, but you didn't ask for my help with your grammar. You know, so maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. You didn't ask what route we should take, so maybe I should let you drive and decide. I hope, I I can't see who asked the question, but I hope that gave you some, some guidance. You know, when do you get in trouble? What are the, maybe you're trying to be corrective. For me, it's cute, clever, and corrective when, nobody wants it. Love I it. hope that helped. Yeah. And I love those three C's cute, clever, and corrective. Be aware of those. Cause well, I, I think it's so cute to be cute. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it often divides rather than unites. Thank you. Oh, let me, let me add something is since you said three C's, I love the Al-Anon four C's and the Al-Anon four C's are, um, I didn't cause it. I can't change it. I can't cure it, but I better make sure that I'm not contributing to it. You know, so if if somebody is hurt or angry or disappointed, I didn't cause that. I can't change it. I can't cure it. But boy, I can contribute to it in a minute by giving unsolicited advice rather than just saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry you're struggling. Is there anything I can do? Can I help? Do you want to tell me more about it? Can you help me understand how that makes you feel and how it does it cause you to spiral? And then shutting up and listen. Mm, thank you. All right. Next uh, next. Coming in is from Lila from our live audience. Lila says, incredible. Jay, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been such a beautiful, creative, and spirit-filled talk. So grateful. And then she said, uh, Lila says, queer, crackpot, fallen woman, addict, balloon, and parade seeker here. I was very moved by your mention of such painful childhood trauma. I, too, have childhood sexual trauma. My question is how you have developed a loving relationship with your God yourself and another human, despite the pain, fear, shame, and self-hate that can come along with such trauma. How do you reconcile those experiences with the loving God? Yay. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Lila, for asking that. That's part of my talk, but I couldn't 
put that part in because I was running out of time. So um, not only do I have from age three on, my parents gave me away at age three to a family that I hope they thought was a good family. They weren't. They were monsters. I was three, terrified of the dark, and this family locked me in a pitch black closet for the next three years. I slept, toileted, ate, lived, existed in that closet, pulled out once a day to be washed, ritualistically tortured, and raped. And man, it just shattered me. And Finally, I got reunited with my parents. At 15, I found drugs and alcohol. They kept me from suiciding, but made me stupid. I ended up in trouble. My first encounter with the criminal justice system, I got sentenced to the penitentiary. I had no fear because I knew nothing about prison, nothing. And off I went and I lasted five hours before I was gang raped for the first time and it happened throughout my incarceration. And man, uh, talk about PTSD and massive shame. And, and, and I learned as a kid, I was so angry and so filled with hate at my perpetrators, but I couldn't turn it on them. I learned how to turn it on myself. And on top of all of that, my parents programmed me to be an atheist. There is no God. God is the opiate of the masses. Don't ever believe in God. It makes you weak. So. I walked into adulthood with those that history and those beliefs, and I did not believe in God. And yet, it, because of intellectual laziness, I blamed the God in whom I did not believe for every bad thing that ever happened to me and prayed to that God in a Santa Claus way. Please, God, don't let the liquor store close. Please, God, give me a parking space. Please, God, let the dealer be there. You know, it was just so immature. So here's the deal. I get sober and at my first meeting, which was on a Friday, and they suggested that I go to Log Cabin, which was, they said, what they said was, honey, you are sicker than most. And I went, oh my God, thank you. They said it wasn't a compliment. It was an observation. You would benefit from morning meetings. Go to Log Cabin on Robertson Boulevard in West Hollywood. And I did. Monday morning, my third day sober, and I start to walk up the steps and some guy in a pink shirt said, hi, honey, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you leave your fantasies at the door, all of your dreams can come true in AA if you're willing to work for them. And I about fell over. And I was associate director of medical research at a children's hospital in Los Angeles. I didn't like children. Nancy and I didn't have children because we didn't like them. And that's alcoholism. I'm working at a children's hospital and I don't like children and I'm armed. I've got three guns on cock and lock because you turn your back on a five-year-old with leukemia. You don't know what they might do to you. I mean, out of my mind, paranoid. Anyway. I heard that fantasies versus dreams. I walked into the hospital at three days sober that morning, quit my job, went downtown, got a job at County Hospital as a cancer nurse caring for the dying and did that for a year and then a year on the pain management service and made the leap to hospice. And here's what I found in my hospice work. The place where life and death meet is filled with God, period. That's not a theory. It's not a hypothesis. It was my experience. And I couldn't deny it. And it was so powerful. And then all I had to do was figure out how that undeniable God worked with my history. And here's where I got to and where I am today. That there's a loving God who designed it, who created it, and put it in motion and gave us free will. And that loving God never leaves my side, co-journeys with me always, and co-suffers with me, but does not intervene. Watched me being raped at three and four and five and six years old and wept at my suffering and looked at my rapists and wept at their suffering, that they had moved so far from his grace, but did not intervene because he made them with everything they needed for redemption and made me with everything I needed for resilience. And I don't know if they reached for it, but I know that I did. 
first through drugs and alcohol. And when that didn't work, then through the incredibly powerful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the transformative 12 steps and 12 traditions of our incredible fellowship. And so that's how I got to this loving God who gave us free will and is a non-intervening, but co-journeying and co-suffering God. And that's, that was so much had to do with my healing, along with some good therapy and the practice of Tong Lin, T-O-N-G-L-E-N, which is a Tibetan Buddhist um, meditative and on-the-spot practice that's kind of the antithesis of most other meditations and was so essential in the last part of my healing, my incest, and leaving me whole. Nothing broken, nothing missing. I'm whole. And today I'm healthy, sexually, emotionally, physically. I'm, he- I'm healed. You know. Thank you for I sharing that. that I hope that helped. It helped me a ton. Thank you for sharing that miracle. I really appreciate that, Jay. We have one more question here before we go into wrap up. Um, question is from an anonymous attendee. They ask, thank you so much for the incredible qualification. I am sober dating in SLAA, and I'm curious how you'd apply your share to situations of dating as opposed to established relationships, especially because when dating, sometimes God's will is to walk away. Thoughts on that? Um, It's the same set of principles. These 12 traditions in relationships are in relationships, whether it's in the sober living you're living at, with your family of origin at Thanksgiving, on the freeway, in the workplace, in the rooms, in a long-term marriage, or in a dating relationship. Is what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do going to create greater separation or greater unity? And if it's not greater unity, I don't say it. Am I looking for a loving God in that person and having it change how I speak to and about them and how I engage them? Am I looking for a loving God in me? And having it change how I speak to myself, how I speak about myself, and how I offer myself. Am I being conditional or am I surrendering conditionality? Am I step tradition four? Am I trying to control them? Five, am I seeing behavior as manifestation of their suffering or my suffering and bringing mercy rather than judgment to it. Tradition six, am I looking for money, property, and prestige, including the prestige of of getting over? And tradition seven, is this self-sabotaging or self-supporting? And and in dating, sometimes you realize, wow, this person's really hot or really popular or really you know, looks good on my arm, regardless of what the genders are. But maybe it's, maybe your motives aren't clean. And so it's a self-sabotaging relationship you've entered into. And maybe you need to stop it because it is self-sabotaging. It's not healthy. So motives and consequences become really important. You know, what are my motives and how clean are they? And separately, what are the possible consequences of this choice? Am I, and am I willing to accept responsibility for those consequences? So important. You know, so the people say, they say lots of shit that is not in the book. You know, the road gets narrow, but the book says on page 55 and 75 that we're on a broad highway. They say you can't date in your first year. The book says on page 69, we don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sexual conduct. Dot, dot, dot. We put each relationship to the simple test. Is it selfish? If I see that that person is selfish or I'm being selfish, Maybe this is not the relationship for me. If I find that I'm at a point early enough in my recovery that I can't, I can't seem to master 
behaving in ways that are unselfish, then maybe I need to do more work before I enter into an intimate relationship, a dating relationship, or I'm going to end up choosing the wrong person or the right person, but, but destroying them or the potential for a good relationship because I'm still being so selfish. So those are all uh, guideposts, guidelines that I hope helped a little bit in. Yeah. Thank you so much. Do you have any final words of wisdom for us before we, we do the closing reading and, and close this meeting? Out? I don't think so. I think, um, I think I'm good. I mean, this is, you, you can tell I am in love with the traditions. Let me just tell you one, one real quick story. So I'm at Log Cabin. It's my home group. I go there every day. This guy comes in and he's there every day and he's like new and he's in treatment and then he's in sober living and then he gets a year and his parents fly down from Bend, Oregon to give him his one year cake and they get there early and he introduces them to me and his mother looks at me and she goes, I know you. I said, yeah, how? She says, last year, you and your wife came to Bend, Oregon, and you were lecturing at the hospital, but then you did this AA workshop for us on applying the 12 traditions to romantic relationships. You and your wife were amazing. And I thought of correcting her, but there was no reason. And so I just said, thank you. My wife had been dead for several years. Nancy was not up there with me in Bend, Oregon. She was with me, but she was not a co-presenter. And the stories that I told in the two and a half hour version of this talk that I gave you 25 minutes of made Nancy come alive so powerfully that in this woman's mind, Jay and Nancy presented the workshop on applying the 12 traditions, not Jay. And it really, really touched me and and, uh, reconfirmed the power of story because I tell far more stories in the long version of it. They're illustrative and that's how people remember them is through stories, not through a academic outlining of them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for bringing Nancy into this, this uh, talk also with you. Yay. I'm so happy for this. Thanks, Jay. That was a great RICO 12 weekly speaker meeting for all addicts and those wanting to learn more about addiction and the recovery therefrom. If you have other questions, um, please feel free to go to rico12.com forward slash forum and join in our community there and ask those questions and answers others' questions that will come up. Also have a Facebook group, RICO 12. Look it up and join us. I invite the audience to come back next week. If you have not yet rated and reviewed the podcast and Apple Podcasts, please go do so now. It's a great way to help us work our step 12 in sharing this message with others. Next week, we will be hearing from Sid K., sober from drugs and alcohol since 2015, whose topic will be living a surrendered life. I had a great conversation with Sid this last week and think that his story will be another powerful one. Now let's launch off, launch off into the rest of the day with the prayer that Jay has chosen, and I will voice that. <clears throat> Dear God, please guide me to stay sober, live fully, love deeply, and serve others. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jay. Come trudge this happy road with me. Work it. You are worth it. Here I am, still standing tall
despite the rough terrain One like me survived the storms And walked through wind and rain Still standing, I will fight the good fight Still searching for glimmers of light Feet still on the ground I can still be found Standing still My wings are torn and tattered But I know I still can Jesus.